The State Department is turning to machine learning to help declassify records. The agency has used this tool now for scrubbing older diplomatic cables, and now it has its sights set on a broader set of records. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. They have a declassification tool based on machine learning. Tell us more about that one, Justin. That's right. If you go on the State Department's virtual FOIA reading room, you'll see a whole ream of records from uh, 1997 that were just released late last month. Old diplomatic cables, a report from the embassy in Sofia detailing discord in the Bulgarian Socialist Party, or an, an internal summary of Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's visit with President Nelson Mandela in South Africa. And those cables are now 25 years old, so they're subject to being released, even though they were once classified. They are notable because they were declassified using a machine learning tool that the agency developed internally. And then these cables were not subject to any FOIA requests, but state officials determined they could be publicly released through the proactive disclosure provision of FOIA. So state officials are calling it the first ever proactive disclosure of previously classified records using machine learning. So something of a big step there. Well, are there records of that age that have to stay classified and this machine learning tool is able to distinguish by reading them in some manner, quote unquote? That's correct. And deciding. That's right. That's what's so important about this tool. Normally, it is humans that that go through these old cables and decide, yes, that could be declassified or no, it should stay classified. This tool that the State Department developed was trained on years of those human decisions, and it kind of spits out either a yes, it should be declassified, no, it should stay classified, or, or a maybe to refer to a human decision there. Eric Stein is Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Global Information Services, and he talked about how accurate this machine learning tool has become. After trial and error, we were able to see that we were able to train a machine learning model with a human foundation of knowledge to be 97% as accurate as humans were. And some of those 3% issues weren't even review, review decisions. They were actually data quality issues or other challenges. Interesting. So they tried it on a small set, relatively speaking, of diplomatic cables. And now they want to broaden it to greater declassification. I mean, there's a declassification schedule for lots of records, some of them much longer than cables, I think, are big, huge documents. So what comes next here? They're actually looking at expanding this to its, uh, it's the State Department's central repository of emails. Of co- course, there are both unclassified emails and then there are classified emails. They, they have them in a searchable central repository dating back to 2017, Stein said. And they're looking at bringing those up to somehow be you know, shirts through using a machine learning tool. There's a big push to really overhaul declassification efforts using technology writ large. This has been something that, you know, the Information Security Oversight Office at NARA has pointed out for for a really long time. Uh, This is something that the Public Interest Declassification Board has been calling for for a really long time. There's just this huge avalanche of classified records out there with all the digital records that now exist. And folks have been saying that they need to use technology to really start searching through them because humans just can't possibly keep up. Here's what Stein said about that. These are proactive steps that we're taking with technology to increase transparency at our agency and work that could be done at other agencies as well if they have the technology and ability to do so. 
I think it's crucial that you've pointed out this is not simply a keyword search program, but it actually takes into account what people have decided over the years. And what do they plan next in their declassification push here? They are looking at applying this to things like email. This tool only cost them about $400,000 to develop. Uh, according to Stein, he, he said that's you know much more cost efficient than hiring dozens of people to actually do this work instead. He also acknowledged that there's going to be challenges when you try to move to different types of data beyond the kind of pretty simple rote diplomatic cable. We're seeing ways of expanding what we learned from this cable project to emails and other types of records. It comes down to focusing on a specific set of data, records that have data standards that the technology can use to sort and identify. And it gets more challenging as we look at different record types, you know, whether it be PDFs, photos, JPEGs, videos. You start looking at all these different types of records that are out there. The technology starts to struggle a little bit. Right. The unstructured data, I guess, is the problem for these types of algorithms. And so will AI then and machine learning go beyond the classification realm to other areas of state? Yeah, they're also looking at using this as part of the FOIA process. There's a couple different angles to to this. We mentioned how they released those declassified records uh, using the proactive disclosure provision of FOIA. And they're also trying to use AI at state as part of the broader FOIA process to help handle the initial intake of requests, perhaps by telling the requester those records that they're seeking have actually already been released. Or maybe they need to clarify the request somehow to either, you know, clarify the scope of the request. Uh, and then also using AI as part of the records search process to search across, you know, a central repository of emails for responsive records to a FOIA requests. So, you know, agency FOIA programs have struggled with limited resources, just like declassification efforts to keep up with all these different requests. There were a record number of requests last year, for instance, and there's an expanding set of electronic records they have to look through. There's at least a few different agencies out there that are looking at using some flavor of AI as part of FOIA, and state, the State Department is one of them. And this will then augment the FOIA staff, but by no means replace any of the members of that staff. The way that folks are describing it from what I've heard is you, you can't afford to cut FOIA staff. You just need to augment them somehow because it's hard to hire more. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. Be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
you. your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.